0: Welcome to the Winner Circle with Derek Pang and Bianca Leger. On this podcast, we'll introduce you to real world heroes who have stepped outside their safe, known worlds to pursue and live their win, their best lives. This is a choice we all get to make. The intention behind these conversations is to uplift, inspire, and empower you to move forward with greater faith, trust, and belief in yourself on your hero's journey ahead. Let's go, hero. All right, we are live, and on today's episode of Welcome to the Winner Circle, alongside co-host Bianca Leger, we interview an experienced keynote speaker and author who helps individuals and organizations maximize performance. And as an internationally renowned basketball performance coach, he spent 15 plus years working with the highest performing athletes on the planet, including NBA superstars Kevin Durant, Steph Curry, and Kobe Bryant. His list of corporate clients include American Express, Pepsi, Starbucks, Under Armour, UGG, Orange Series Fitness, and Penn State Football. His latest book, Sustain Your Game, will be available April 12th, and looks at what the highest performers in sports and business do to continuously create winning cultures and championship teams. Welcome back to the Winner circle,
1: Alan Stein, Jr., Oh, it's so lovely to be with you guys. I'm excited to be here. Thank you so much.
2: Mm, this is awesome. I'm excited. I'm, I feel like uh, I'm, I'm getting the new up-level version of Alan. I watched your latest podcast that you recorded um, just about a year a year ago. Um, so I'm excited for this, uh, this new conversation.
1: Yeah, this will be fun. It's like a reunion. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: <laughs> we, we ended that conversation with you saying at 44 years old, You are the best, doing the best you've ever been. And you challenged me to ask you next time we talk, how are you better today? So Alan Stein, a year and a half later from our last conversation, how are you better today
1: than you were then? Well, I'm 46 now, so we can add two more years on the calendar to that. And uh, yeah, I mean, I say with the exact same level of confidence and conviction, uh, right now is the best that I've ever been doing in every area of my life. So uh, thankfully, uh, I've continued to grow uh, and evolve and improve and, and learn since we last spoke. So uh, what I said then was true. At that time, I was doing the best I've ever done. And I'm thankful that two years later, I can make that exact same claim.
2: that's Mm -hmm. that's so awesome Uh, it it gets me very intrigued and i i have a question right away about this um for me i find often when i learn something new it's like i could have told something to my past self that i didn't know back then um because uh, we don't know that we don't know something until we do right um So you're you're on this beautiful incline, and I'm excited to hear about how we can kind of generate this type of of, uh, optimization of our lives for uh, constantly thriving towards our best selves. Um, And yet, I still wonder, what are things that you feel you have learned in the past year? How do you feel like you have changed and
1: evolved? Well, oh, I love the direction we're coming right out of the gate. And one thing that I think is important to say, we, we all have the benefit of hindsight being twenty twenty. It's so easy for us to, to look at our lives and to look backwards and to say things like, I wish I would have known that then, or the, an even more dangerous statement is, I should have known that then, mm. which really denies our humanity in the moment. What I've gotten better at in regards to that is giving my previous self some grace and some compassion and forgiving myself in the past uh, for a plethora of mistakes you know i've made um and being at peace with the fact that at that time i was doing the best i was capable of with the information i had and anytime you can you hit the fast forward buzz at the pr- button to present day you know i have more information today than i had two years ago i have more <laughs> awareness today than i had two years ago I've been exposed to more people and books and documentaries and podcasts. You know, the inputs in my life have increased exponentially since then. So therefore the outputs uh, have also gotten better. So I'm okay with that, that, that journey and that, that timeline. And I'll make the exact same claim again. If you guys have me on your show two years from now, uh, I feel very confident that, that I'll be able to say that I'm doing even better then that. I've learned more and, and, you know, the, the fun part is, which I think is the real key to life and why I'm so optimistic at present day, I don't know what those new things are going to be that I'm going to learn between yeah. now and the next time that we get together. But I know that, that I'm, I'm always on the lookout and I'm always open and I'm always trying to attract the right people and the right information in my life so that I'm very confident that that growth will continue. Uh, as far mm-hmm. as your specific question, um, how I've changed in the last couple of years, you know uh, what's made this time really unique, of course, has been the global pandemic that's affected everybody, and mm-hmm. I think that's really revealed certain characteristics in each and every one of us on an individual level and on a societal level. And uh, yeah. you know, I, I think it's it's allowed many people, in particular, to reprioritize mm. what they believe is important. Um, mm to put a focus on things, you know, that maybe they didn't put a focus on before. Uh, mm-hmm. Cause for the most part, regardless of where you lived on planet earth, there was a period of time where things pretty much shut down and, and the world kind of felt like it stopped and allowed everyone to look internally and go, okay, am I living the life that I want to live? Um, am I doing the things that I want to do? And, and mm-hmm. I believe that caused a lot of people, including myself, to kind of make a few shifts and make a few adjustments. And now that we're all hopefully uh, slowly crawling out of this global pandemic, and we're gonna begin whatever will be the new normal, um, are we gonna continue to live the lives that we started to to recalibrate and reinvent during the pandemic?
2: Hmm.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Amazing. Question.
1: <laughs> Derek,
2: it... I hope I'm not interrupting you. No, you... go ahead. Yeah, I'm I'm so intrigued. First, thank you so much for this perspective. I feel like that's really something that can slow so many people down. The fact that, oh, I wish I would have done that. And it, it really can get people stuck in, in loops. Like I've I've been there where I like replay things I feel like I've done wrong and it's it's not conducive to progress. It keeps you in the in the past. So that's a beautiful mindset, and I really appreciate you sharing that. Um, you said that you talked about focus and, um, and about shifts happening. Where do you feel like people are more are feeling more called to put their focus on? and where do you see these shifts happening since the last year?
1: The shifts that I've personally seen with a lot of the people that I've interacted with, uh, whether it's through a speaking engagement or, or through social media. Uh, I've seen that people have shifted to start focusing on their own self care and their own health. You know, there was a lot of people prior yeah. to the pandemic that I believe kind of kept their foot on the gas pedal 24 uh, seven, mm. and they did not make the time. To exercise. They did not make the time to to eat well. They did not make the time to get adequate sleep. They didn't make the time for their family and friends. And when things shut down and you started people, you know, that you started seeing people post on social media, you know, it's been awesome having dinner with my family every night. And we've certainly enjoyed taking long walks through our neighborhood when nothing else was available. I think those are some of the biggest shifts was A shift Mm -hmm. in self-care and a shift in devoting time to those that that you love the most. And I'm certainly hoping those are two things that people will continue to do now that the pendulum swings back in the other direction Mm -hmm. and the world continues to open up. Uh, Mm -hmm. I hope they don't lose those things. And, um, you know, because I I think those things are vital um, to not only improved performance, which I know everyone's interested in, but to improved fulfillment as well and really enjoying Mm -hmm. Life And that's, you know, that's really kind of the focus of my, my new book is how we can, you know, manage stress and avoid stagnation and beat burnout. Um, And all of these things we're talking about right now feed directly into that. Yeah, Mm, absolutely.
0: And I'm excited to get into your new book shortly, Sustain Your Game. But on the topic of self-care, I'd like to discuss that because during the pandemic, it helped me reinforce what are my foundational self-care tools in all aspects of my being, mental, physical, emotional, and spiritual. And I would like to go over those four categories with you. And what have you established as your foundations in all four? And I'm especially interested, and we can start there, to hear about spiritual, because that's something I don't hear you talk much about. Um, So let's get into your found what the spirituality look like to you, Alan. What are your foundational elements in that category, and then let's move on to the physical, the mental, and the emotional.
1: For me, spiritual is just kind of your relationship with the universe around you, and and you know your your perspective on the world. Um, you know, I, I know uh, spiritual means something different to everyone, so I I believe and I have a, an immense respect for the fact that it's a very personalized. Um, definition, you know, for the most part, I would think most people define the physical silo very similarly. You know, it's, it's kind of your body and and taking care of this machine that we all have. Um, But spiritual, I I think if you were to ask 10 different guests, you may get 10 slightly different answers. Uh, I know for some folks uh, there's a heavy faith and religious component to their spirituality. Um, for other folks, it's more of a, a cosmic sense of their relationship with the universe. So uh, I think for everyone, it's, it's slightly different. Uh, I, I For me, the spirituality component is directly interwoven in with kind of the emotional component. There's a lot of those things that, that I think there's some overlap there. Um, but I, I just I love the way that you've identified that we have these different areas in our life um, that we need to make sure we focus on and prioritize and emphasize but that they're also not completely separate that they're all kind of woven together uh, i'm a big believer that if you improve your physical health and well-being that will allow you to have better mental acuity and focus that will allow you to regulate your emotions better and those two things will help support whatever your spiritual beliefs are so uh, these things are while they may be we can divide them in as far as categories they're still interwoven together and they affect each other. And, uh, you know, it's for, I think most people would agree. If you're, you're having a tough day emotionally, you probably feel less motivated to go work out and to take care of your physical body. You know, when you're struggling emotionally, that might be a trigger uh, to eat some comfort food that might not be the healthiest food for you to eat. So once again, these things, they're, they're all connected and, uh, that's just the way we are as human beings. We, you know, I always believe in taking a very holistic approach. And there might be one area in one of these silos that I might put more focus on at any given time, but I do understand the totality is they're all related. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah,
0: absolutely. So what would be your foundations for spirituality? What, like, what is the one foundational element of your spiritual life? For me, it's yoga and meditation. How about for
1: you? Uh, Yeah, I would second that. Yoga and meditation are are two ways that help me feel more grounded, feel more mindful, and help me feel more connected to the the world and the universe around me. So yeah, I would would actually say the exact same thing. Mm -hmm.
0: For emotional, um, I know one thing you mentioned in our last conversation is um, seeking a therapist and the great benefit that it's had for you. So I know that is one of your foundational pieces of your emotional self-care. What are some others?
1: You know, the, the foundation of my emotional bucket, if you will, is simply self-awareness and the ability uh, to recognize, understand, and manage the emotions that I feel every single day. And those will ebb and flow. And, and, and as human beings, being very sentient beings, Um, Our emotions will always ebb and flow, and I'm getting much better at being able to recognize them, uh, giving myself permission to feel however I feel. You know, I I no longer try, and I say no longer because I did this for most of my life, I no longer try to resist or suppress any emotion. Uh, If I'm upset or I'm angry, I give myself permission to be upset and angry, Um, but I'm also conscious enough to know that that's simply information. That's not a directive that there's nothing wrong because I don't like labeling things right or wrong, good or bad. There's nothing wrong about feeling angry, but I don't allow that emotion to dictate my behavior. So just because I'm feeling angry, um, I'm very conscious about making sure that I I don't say something disrespectful to someone or I don't lash out or or I don't try to diminish somebody else to temporarily make myself feel better. So I, I have an awareness of how I'm feeling but I have full control over what my behavior will be. Uh, and sometimes, you know, I mean, I, I can be upset or angry or, or maybe just in a bad mood. Uh, and I just know, okay, I got to kind of shut it down for a little bit. You know, I, I, I need to, to give myself some space and give myself some room to breathe and that that's okay. So what I've really tried to do, and this has been heightened over the last couple of years, is remove all judgment. Um, is to not be self-critical, which is something I was very guilty of for most of my, my life, um, and to not stack shame and guilt on top of those things. Because it's very easy to let that spiral out of control. You know, I'm, I'm upset about something, and now I feel guilty for, for feeling upset, which I shouldn't. I'm a human being. We're, I have a whole palette of emotions. So uh, for, for me, the emotion, and this is something I, I get to practice every day of my life, uh, as we all should, Um, I look at that emotional bucket as constantly trying to improve my ability to recognize, manage, and understand my emotions, um, and make sure that they're not dictating my behavior.
0: Mm -hmm. And now for the the mental
1: bucket, which is
0: full of books, documentaries, podcasts, workshops, listening to various keynote speakers. Um, How do you balance Cons- like, take like all and cons- constant needing to get more information to know that you have enough and applying that. Um, how do you balance that mental bucket?
1: That's definitely a, a difficult balance to have. I'm that that has been a big pillar of my life for a really long time the personal and professional development side. And I'm always taking in new information and it kind of varies what sources I get it from. Like, I used to be much more into reading physical books. Now I'm much more into listening to podcasts. Um, But as long as I'm having quality inputs, because I do believe uh, the quality of your inputs directly reflect the quality of your outputs that, you know, uh, in order to improve your thinking and attitude and mindset and perspective and educate yourself, then you need to make sure you're you're putting good stuff in. I mean, certainly no different than our human, you know, our bodies when it comes to the physical, if you're putting garbage in, you're going to be putting garbage out. And so I'm very, I have high discernment and high diligence in what I read, watch, and listen to. However, with that said, I don't just read, watch, and listen to stuff that already affirms and confirms what I already believe. Uh, I read, watch, and listen to stuff that has points of view that I know challenge what I think and and that may view things differently than I do uh, or or someone that I know has a different belief system. Uh, I stay very open to that. Because I want to learn and, and I have a fascination and a curiosity on why someone would believe something that might adamantly oppose something that I believe. So I try not to insulate myself uh, in a bubble where I'm just reinforcing what I already know and what I already believe. I, I don't need to do that. I already know that and I already believe it. I, I like reading and, and watching and listening to stuff that, that challenges that point. Um, and I'd like to do that from a variety of different sources. You know, I'm a huge believer in diversity. Uh, I know, you know, I believe most people hear the word diversity and they immediately think of race or ethnicity uh, or maybe even religion or possibly gender uh, or identification. And those are all beautiful parts of diversity. But I also believe in diversity of thought, uh, diversity of experience, diversity of perspective. So I I try to make sure that I'm constantly listening to different stuff. And, you know, if I, I pulled out my phone and showed you the the podcasts that I listen to regularly, they're all over the map. I mean, they're, mm-hmm. they're a variety of different hosts and topics and beliefs. And, and I love that. And, uh, you know, I, I try to mix that stuff up on the regular. And then I supplement my very heavy podcast listening um, with, I do read physical books still, just not at the same uh, rate that I used to read them. And I do watch educational videos on YouTube or a documentary on Netflix, like anything that's going to help me stimulate thought. Uh, and then when I, my process for all of those things, um, I'm a rigorous note taker. So I'm, I'm always taking notes and then I'm figuring out which of this stuff, you know, uh, can be incorporated into my life philosophy and perspective. Like what am I learning that I can then turn around and use and share to light other people's candles and to fill their buckets and which stuff do i read and learn that maybe i don't necessarily agree with or align with but it strengthens my own convictions so uh, i'm always taking notes and then i'm figuring out how can i actually incorporate this into my life how can i use this to improve myself and then how can i do that to help others improve their lives so you know i don't i don't read watch and listen to stuff just for the sake of doing it i actually want to put that stuff into action and put it into practice uh, now there's plenty of other things that i watch for pure entertainment. You know, if, if I decide to binge watch Ozark, uh, it's because I enjoy the show and I'm fascinated by acting and directing and cinematography. Uh, I'm not taking notes while I'm watching Ozark, um, but I am taking notes dur- during more of these educational uh, mediums. Mm-hmm. And as a
0: lifelong athlete, this last bucket has well, probably been the easiest for you. And, um, and that is your physical bucket. What are your foundations to your physical health? Let's talk about nutrition and let's talk about physical activity. The number one thing that we could do for a brain.
1: Well, I would say that the physical bucket has been my most consistent for my entire life. You know, I've always identified as being an athlete, you know, since I was five years old and here, 46 years later, uh, I still identify with being an athlete, even though I'm, I guess by, by letter of the law, I'm technically not one. Um, so, so that part, I've been building that consistency and discipline muscle when it comes to the physical for my entire life. So I would say that one's the easiest for me um, because it is it's just something that's always been a part of of who I am and what I do. Um, But that has changed significantly as well. I mean, because I'm constantly learning and researching and trying new stuff, you know, over the last 30 years, I would have been able to look you in the eye and tell you that I eat a healthy diet. But what I consider a healthy diet today is much different than what I considered a healthy diet 10 years ago. At that time, I was doing the best I could with the information I had, but now I'd like to believe I have better information and more awareness. So I'd like to believe I'm eating healthier today, Um, but I still did it, you know, did the best I could then. Same thing from a working out standpoint, you know, whatever I was doing for workouts 10 years ago at that time, I thought was in my best interest for my physical development and well-being. But my workouts have certainly changed over time. So um, yeah, and that's something that's always fascinated me. So I'm always toying around with different workout programs and signing up for different physical challenges to give me something to train for. I'm always tweaking my diet and and trying different things. Um, uh, Same thing with, you know, uh, not even just nutrition, but it's under the the physical well-being bucket, you know, uh, coming up with a sleep routine so I can have more restful sleep at night. Um, and, and all of those things I'm, I'm constantly toying with, and I'm open to trying different things and just seeing how I feel. And, uh, I enjoy that. Like I like tinkering and, and trying new foods, trying new diets. You know, I've, I've tried a variety of different intermittent fasting or time restricted fasting, doing different things. And, and I find that exciting. Mm -hmm.
2: Um, I, I have a curiosity. (laughs) um okay well thank you for that and what really stands out to me about what you just shared is um the, the identification with the athlete and the mindset that you cultivate that is really in alignment with that evolution curve you know we're we're doing what we can to support ourselves um on all these levels and like, you are an amazing role model for this and just hearing how you're trying new things is really inspiring, so thank you. Um, Keeping in mind that there's an identification with being an athlete and the mindset that we create in order to um, cultivate the behaviors that align with our desired outcomes. I wanna ask you about what is your relationship to beliefs, the beliefs we cultivate, what is your relationship with those and how do you distinguish belief versus knowledge?
1: Oh, well, yeah, but I'm, I'm fascinated by belief. You know, I would say one of the biggest differences, and this goes back to what you all asked at the very beginning of the show, like what's changed between the 44 year old Alan and the 46 year old Alan. And I think I have a better awareness and feeling for the difference between facts and beliefs. Uh, The difference between hard truths and perspectives, Uh, because I think with any type of belief that we have or any type of perspective, it's easy to fall victim to thinking that that is a truth, that that is a a hard fact when it actually isn't. It's, you know, uh, I recognize the fact that my belief system, my perspective on any given topic or the world at large is heavily biased it's heavily biased based on where I was raised, how I was raised, um, uh, the experiences I've had, the things that have happened to me in my life, the books that I've read, the movies that I've watched, all of that has created my view of the world. And I'm, I'm consciously reminding myself that, That's all this is. It's my view of the world. It is not right or wrong. It's not good or bad. Uh, It's not better or worse than how you two view the world. Um, And it's definitely not a truth. It is simply my perspective. And that was definitely heightened over the pandemic. Um, I mean, you could easily find a few people that say the pandemic was the worst thing to ever happen to them. And the worst thing that ever happened to humanity And you could easily find a few people that say the pandemic was the best thing that ever happened to them and the best thing that ever happened to humanity well they're both talking about the same event so obviously Mm -hmm. it can't be a truth there there has now there are some facts involved with the pandemic but this is just their perception of it and their Mm -hmm. perception of it is based on a whole bunch of factors that 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 shape their belief system. And for me, understanding the difference between the two. Now I have some beliefs and some core convictions and some perspectives um, that, that I hold on to dearly. I'd like to believe I don't grasp anything with a, a death grip that, that I should be open enough to taking in new information to possibly change my belief. And I, I try and do that, but just remembering that that's all that it is. It's just a belief. Uh, and that has actually helped in my ability it's raised my empathy and compassion and has helped my ability to connect with other human beings. Mm -hmm. Because if if you and I were to to view something differently or you and I have a difference of opinion, um, I go through a few steps now that I don't think I was capable of going through a few years ago. Uh, The first step is just that acknowledgement, is the acknowledgement that I'm entitled to have my own opinion and beliefs, but therefore you are as well. And I need to be respectful of yours Even if I adamantly and fundamentally disagree with them, I need to respect the fact that you are allowed and entitled to have your own opinion and beliefs. Um, The next thing I do is I give you the benefit of the doubt that you're doing the best you can with your current level of awareness and you're doing the best you can with the information you had. It's the same approach I take with my younger self. You know, 44 year old Alan was doing the best he could that time. Now the 46 year old Alan's doing the best he can today. So I, I assume and to some people's belief, maybe naively so, I assume everyone's doing the best they can. You know, when you see someone that you think is is just completely out to lunch and they're making really poor decisions or they believe something that you just think is absolutely ridiculous, just understand they probably don't have the same tools that you have and they don't have the same awareness that you have. So don't fault them as a human being. That's that's all they've got to play with. You know, if if the only tool you have in your toolbox is a hammer then all you can do is go around hitting things. That's all you have. You have no other options. But if you have a whole bunch of different tools in your toolbox, now you can be a little bit more, you know, you, 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 can, you have more to choose from. And then the last thing that I do when I find people with a different belief system, and I mentioned this before, is I lean in with curiosity and fascination. I lean in and go, wow, this person believes something that is on the opposite end of the spectrum that I believe. I'm so curious by that. Like, I'm fascinated. I want to ask them questions. Like, why do you believe what you believe? You know, why, you know, why, in, in the example I used earlier, you know, why do you believe the pandemic is the worst thing that ever happened to you? And they'll probably share some things that, you know, if you're open to it, you'd be like, yeah, of course, I understand why you feel that way. If those things happened to me, I would probably feel the same way. Um, so it, it's, I think, going through these steps when it comes to beliefs and perspectives. Um, Allows me to connect more deeply, show more empathy and compassion, uh, which I think is needed in a world that's been heavily divisive um, over the last few years in particular.
0: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. A new shiny new tool that I look forward to adding to my tool belt is your new book, Sustain Your Game, which drops on April 12th, and it's built on a simple premise, something that we kind of talked about throughout this conversation already. And that is each of us will always be under construction, a work in progress, constantly evolving. What was your inspiration to write this book as a follow up to your first book, Raise Your Game?
1: Well, I by no means want to imply that I reached the mountaintop. I think that's going to be something I'll be pursuing for my entire life. But I always try and write about whatever it is that I'm actually going through and experiencing in my own life. So when I wrote, raise your game, my main focus was on how can I optimize my own performance and, and perform as well as I'm capable of in different areas of my life. And while I'll always be in pursuit of that, I I've now most recently shifted gears to say, okay, how can I sustain excellence and sustain performance and sustain fulfillment for long periods of time? I mean, Barring something catastrophic or unforeseen, which I have no control over, I'm 46 years old. Statistically, I should be at about the half time of my life. So I don't see any reason why I shouldn't live another 46 years, maybe more. We'll see. Um, so if I've done all of these things in the first 46 to reach a certain level of performance or happiness or, or fulfillment, now what are the things I need to do to not only maintain that, but continually? slowly evolve and grow over time, over the next 46 years. And, and I think this is something else the pandemic really heightened was that the biggest combatants to that are stress, stagnation, and burnout. That, that those are the three biggest drags and detractors to reaching fulfillment and high performance. So if we can find a way to mitigate stress, stagnation, and burnout, um, then it's, it's almost like taking a, a weight vest off be so much more nimble and and so much looser uh, and so much freer to pursue the things that fill our bucket uh so i pay a lot of attention to kind of stress in the short term on the day-to-day pay a lot of attention to not putting on the mental cruise control and plateauing and stagnating in the midterm and then i'm always very conscious uh, of not allowing those things to creep up to the point where i feel burned out uh, not just on work but just burned out on life
2: Mm.
0: Mm -hmm. So Let's examine those those three categories. Part one is perform, and that's managing stress in the day-to-day, the short term. How do you do that?
1: The first thing I, I think you do is, it's kind of two steps. One is just accept the fact that most of the things that go on in the world are outside of your control. You know, um, uh, Eckhart Tolle, who's uh, the best way to describe Eckhart Tolle for anyone that doesn't know who he is. He's kind of a modern day philosopher. Um, But of all the different definitions of stress, I actually resonate with his definition of stress the most. And he says, stress is the desire for things to be different than they are in the moment. So it's whatever you have going on in your life in this moment, if you wish that it was different, that's what causes stress. If you are sitting in, you know, gridlock and you're sitting in traffic and you wish that all of the cars in front of you would magically disappear so you could get where you're trying to go quicker. That's what causes stress. So the way to alleviate that is to just have pure acceptance and just say, there's nothing I can do about the fact that I'm stuck in this traffic. It's not my preference, but I'm certainly not, you know, it's not, I'm not in charge of the universe. I'm not in charge of everything that goes on. So I'm just gonna accept the fact that I'm sitting in some traffic, or I'm gonna accept the fact you know, that, that I'm in a disagreement with my spouse, or I'm gonna accept the fact that my boss just piled a bunch of work on my plate uh, on a Friday afternoon and I gotta work this weekend. Those things are not my preferences, but if I try to resist them and fight against them, that's what actually causes stress. So learning how just to accept uh, is the first step. And then the second step, Um, is to take an attitude of extreme ownership and acknowledge, once again, that you don't control what's going on in the world around you, but you absolutely control your response to that. So you don't control the fact that you're stuck in traffic, but you have two options. There is a clear fork in the road. You can can get upset. You can honk your horn. You can give people the finger. You can slam on your steering wheel. You can call up a friend and, and bitch and moan and complain about traffic. That's one option, which you're certainly welcome to choose, but well, that's a pretty stressful option. Or you can take a deep breath, uh, maybe turn on a podcast or, or, or make a couple of calls uh, to, to reach out to somebody that you haven't talked to in forever, uh, or just simply roll the windows down and enjoy some stillness and enjoy the beautiful day. Um, both of those are responses to, to circumstances out of your control. One of those responses, I believe, causes a, a drastic height in stress and makes you feel worse. And the other is kind of just letting the air out and, and making mm-hmm. you feel better. But having the ownership to recognize that you're the one that controls those responses and to keep that focus just on the present moment um, is, is in what's worked really well for me from a, a stress management standpoint.
0: Mm-hmm. Part two is about pivoting and that's how we manage the medium term. And that's avoiding stagnation in our current situation. Hugh, I'll elaborate a little bit more on that part.
1: Yeah, I I do believe stagnation is incredibly understandable and it's very normal, especially when you've reached a certain level of performance. Uh, I think we unconsciously put on the mental cruise control and just say, hey, things have been going great. Let's just keep riding this out. Um, And if you do that long enough, one, your performance will start to suffer. But two, you just kind of get numb to the whole experience. So for me, I'm constantly trying to shake things up. I'm constantly trying to reinvent myself. Sometimes that's in a, in a grand gesture, like leaving the basketball training space after 15 years and making a total reinvention over to the corporate keynote speaking. And sometimes it's just a very subtle reinvention. It's, you know, hey, it could be any of tweaking any of the things that we've talked about so far. You know, we, mm-hmm. we've talked a ton about the ability to tweak, tweak our physical and our mental inputs. So it's reading new books, listening to new podcasts, trying new foods, trying different workouts. All of those are like micro reinventions and saying, okay, for the last six months, you know, I've been doing a ton of strength training. Um, Now when the weather breaks and it's nice out, I'm going to reinvent myself and I'm going to start doing some long distance running or some endurance work. You know, I've, I've been eating a paleo diet for the last little bit. Maybe I'm going to try a plant-based diet and just see how my body reacts to that or see if I enjoy that. Those are just little micro reinventions and pivots that, that I think we need to uh, be very proactive instead of being reactive. Proactive into trying those different things, and that's what keeps, at least for me, that's what keeps things fresh and new, and, and reduces, uh, you know, the, the stagnation or the plateauing that, that's often inevitable if you don't.
0: Mm-hmm. I'm really curious about this reinvention. Um, You spent 15 years plus in the basketball world and you reinvented yourself as a speaker. And I feel a lot of people get stuck in their roles. People that have been athletes their whole life or coaches, they don't know anything else. And they kind of dwindle in that space because they don't know how or when to move on. Or they see moving on as a failure. How... Can we successfully reinvent ourselves and navigate this, the fear, the scare, being scared of that change?
1: Mm, man, love that. Well, first and foremost, um, and, and I know I sound like I'm repeating myself a lot, but so many of these fundamental concepts, they apply to all of these different scenarios. Uh, the first thing you have to do is be kind to yourself, be compassionate to yourself instead of being critical and saying, it's okay to be scared it's okay to worry and and be a little bit fearful of what this change might cause. There's nothing wrong with that. That is a very human feeling and belief. The second thing is um, to be very careful about attaching labels and judgments to yourself Uh, many of which are done through that self-critical lens. So when you say something to, not you personally, but when a person says something like, you know, well, well, leaving this area means I'm a failure or leaving this marriage means I'm a failure, um, that's not a truth. That is not a fact. This goes back to what we were talking about early. That is simply a story that you're telling yourself and it's a perspective and a belief that you have. Um, now, you may be able, because we're, we're amazing creatures of rationalization, you may be able to pile up tons of evidence from your past that would support that story, and it gets you to start thinking, well, maybe this is a truth, but, but that is not a fundamental truth. If you choose to leave a marriage, that does not necessarily and automatically mean you are a failure. If you choose to leave a job, that does not mean you are a failure. If you get fired from a job and someone tells you, get out of here, we don't want you working here anymore. That does not mean you as a human being are a failure unless you tell yourself that story. So with any of these changes, just know that it's okay to not be okay, that it is okay to be scared. That is a human emotion. It's a primal one. That's kept us alive for all of these years. You know, we, we have to have some level of fear um, and, and, just know that with that acceptance that you don't have to put labels on yourself. You don't have to tell yourself these stories over and over that, that, that you can change that, you know, we each get to write our own story um, and that should be a very liberating and empowering feeling. Um, and it's, it's one that, I mean, we all struggle with and, and let me say this, cause I, I make this disclaimer everywhere I go now, cause it's so important, you know, with all of this stuff, even with what's in the book, I'm not speaking from a place of mastery. I have not figured all of this stuff out. You know, I, I'm not a 90-year-old monk sitting atop a mountain in Tibet that his life figured out. I don't. I'm doing the best I can with the tools I have at present. Now, I'm very proud of the progress I've made. I'm excited and optimistic for the direction in which I'm going. And I love the path that I'm on. But I struggle with all of this stuff that I'm sharing with you guys. So yeah, I absolutely get scared and have anxiety and feel fear in certain circumstances. There are absolutely times where I temporarily look at myself as a failure or look at a mistake and attach judgment to that. But what I'm thankful for now is I have an awareness to catch myself doing those things because I know that they don't serve me. And then I can take a step back and go, you know what, Alan, you're, you're not a failure. You may have failed in this moment at this one task, but it's a learning experience. And now you can draw from that and you can use it moving forward. So I'm, I'm very careful about, uh, attaching those, those labels. And, uh, you know, one of the best things I think any of us can do, and I'm, I'm still working on this myself, is learn how to talk to yourself with mm-hmm. the same love, grace, and compassion that you would talk to a, a friend or a, a sibling or a loved one or a spouse or a child. You know, yeah. I mean, uh, I'm, I'm a proud father of three children who I love very much. You know, mm-hmm. if my children were scared, I would not berate them. I would not call them failures. I would not make them feel worse. I would comfort them. I would try and make them feel better. You know, uh, I'm friends with you guys, you know, Derek, if you reached out to me and said, man, I just had the worst day. I made a really bad decision this morning. I, you know, the first thing I would do was offer you compassion, you know, either literally or figuratively put my arm around your shoulder and say, don't worry about it, man. Things are going to be okay. We're going to learn from this and and you're going to dig out of this. And tomorrow's going to be better. So we have to learn to talk to ourselves in that same tone. And I found through my own experience and that of many people I've worked with that we tend not to do that. We tend to mm-hmm. offer grace, compassion, and love to others. And boy, do we pile it on ourselves. When we make a mistake, You know, it's mm-hmm. like it's gonna be the end of the world. So uh, I think mm-hmm. doing those things help you know, this, accept- this acceptance and acknowledgement and understanding these different things um, is incredibly freeing. I mean, I, mm. I'm I'm lighter now than I've ever been. And I don't mean by physical weight. I, I actually happen to be lighter by physical weight, but that's not what I meant by it. I, I'm not dragging around all of this emotional baggage of uh, being attached mm. to the past when I've done those things. And uh, I'm trying to continue to move in that direction for sure.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I really appreciate that, Alan. And I just wanna mm. peer a little more into this. Um, when was the last time that you feel, felt scared? How did you bring awareness to it? And how did you overcome the situation?
1: So there's a few different types of, of fear. I think there's kind of the acute fear. Um, and I've had an acute fear of, of needles and doctors and like kind of, you know, like I, I can't stand giving blood. Like even now saying it, I can feel my face getting flushed. Like it. It gives me tremendous anxiety and I needed to go in for my routine um, kind of physical and heart checkup a couple of weeks ago and had to do some lab work. And that was part of it. And there was absolutely an acute fear. And and I can actually drop the breadcrumbs and look backwards on on kind of where that started and some things that happened in my childhood that gave me a fear of doctors and needles. Um, and, And it's funny because I know on a conscious level that there's absolutely nothing to fear or be worried about. I mean, heck, if there's ever going to be somewhere where something bad goes wrong, it's at, it's great to be at a doctor's office where there's medical professionals who can help you. I mean, that's arguably the safest place for me to be, but it still brought out this raw visceral feel that, that I have. I mean, I'm literally sweating a little bit right now, even talking about it. But that was a very acute fear. And I found ways to at least mitigate that. You know, I, I was still sweating and nervous, and heart was pounding when I went into the doctor's office. But I found ways to help reduce that. And and for me, one of them is not stacking anxiety and worry on top of that type of fear. Like the moment I set the appointment that I had to go into the doctor, I had a choice to make. I could say, okay, for the next three weeks, I can dread this. I can worry about it every day. I can get all worked up and anxious and doing all of that. I still have to go into the doctor like it doesn't change anything or I can choose to just say, you know what? I'm not going to focus on that. I'm not going to worry about that right now. Uh, I'll just worry about it the morning I have to go in or or the night before. There's no reason to suffer twice. Might as well, if I'm going to suffer, how about I just suffer on the day that I need to do it, not the three weeks leading up to it. And, you know, I'm I'm getting better at being able to take, you know, that type of approach. Um, And then I think just kind of an esoteric fear, you know, as a parent is that something would happen to your children. So I think that's just something that's kind of always in the back of my mind um, as a protector. It's not anything that, that I sit down and focus on or worry about. Um, I'm not one of these parents that wants to put my children in a bubble because I'm fearful that, that something's going to happen to them. But, but that's a, a natural, I believe, fear that many parents would experience, you know, so there's an understanding of that. So I'm always jockeying in and out of kind of these short acute fears and these bigger evergreen, you know, but I try not to let them run my life or dictate my behavior. I accept the fact that I have some of those fears. Um, I don't beat myself up for having them. They're very human. Um, and I try not to pile shame and guilt on top of them. And I try not to get anxious about things in the future that are outside of my control. You know, one of the things that has helped me the most is a full acknowledgement that I have no idea what's going to happen in the future. I have no idea what's going to happen this afternoon, what's going to happen tomorrow, what's going to happen two years from now. Now, Uh, I understand trends and I understand, you know, that that we can be lulled into a belief that we think we know it's going to happen, but we never know what's going to happen. And I'm getting closer to being able to be at peace with that and reconcile Mm -hmm. that and understanding that the future is always hypothetical, that the, the future only exists in language and in our mind. None of us can ever be in the future. The only place you can ever be is where you are right now. Now your mind can allow you to travel backwards and can allow you to travel forwards. And when we, when we travel backwards, now we're just revisiting something that we did in the past. We can't change the events of the past. We're just revisiting. But the future is always 100% hypothetical. None of us can predict the future, ever. And anyone that tells you they can is either lying or they're stupid. I don't know any other way to say it. I mean, there's, there's no way that someone can actually predict the future. Now, I do understand odds and statistics. You know, the the odds of something catastrophic happening this afternoon probably are not very high. So that's even more reason not to worry about them. But the the way I actually use this in practice, and this is something uh, I don't know if you guys are familiar with a gentleman named Peter Crone, but I'm a huge fan of, of Peter's work, and he's been incredibly influential. I've never met the guy. He has no idea who I am but his work has been very influential to me. And he said something really profound that that's really stuck with me and I've, I've adopted that if the, the future is always 100% hypothetical, then why not just make the assumption that things are going to go well, that that the future is bright, that, that, you know, cause it's hypothetical anyway, you know, I can assume that this afternoon is gonna suck or I can assume that this afternoon is gonna be great. Both of them are fictitious. Both of them are made up. Both of them are hypothetical. But which one is gonna make me feel better and give me more optimism is assuming that this afternoon is gonna go great. And if mm-hmm. for any reason that it doesn't, I'll have the tools to be able to accept whatever happens in that moment and I'll be able to deal with it. But, but coming up with a doomsday scenario that things are gonna be awful in the future mm-hmm. doesn't help. And last thing mm-hmm. I'll say, cause I know this was a mouthful, you guys got me so excited. You know, <laughs> When that doctor's appointment was over and I had given my lab work, I had done my test, You know, I always say the same thing afterwards. That wasn't so bad. Like, why did I spend so much time worried about it? It wasn't that bad. It's not my preference. I don't want to do that every single day of my life, but that wasn't so bad. So usually the anticipation of a future that hasn't even occurred yet and the worry that we put into something many times is worse than the actual experience itself. So not only are you suffering twice, you're suffering even more on the front end because of how much you're dreading something. So I'm, I'm getting better, certainly not mastering it, but I'm getting better at that relationship I have with the future.
0: Mm-hmm. And the future takes us to the third part of the sustain your game model, and that is prevailing. It's about beating burnout and making a long list and impact. What is important to know about this category of the sustain your game philosophy?
1: I'm a believer that burnout is caused when The work you're doing and the hours you're putting in and the sacrifices you're making are not in alignment with your core values and your vision for your life in the future. When those things are not congruent and they're not in harmony, that's what causes burnout. Uh, Because I know from my own experience, it, it doesn't have anything to do with the number of hours you work or the level of effort you put in if you're in tune with what you're doing and you love the work that you're doing, we all know people that could easily work 60 hours a week and love every second of it because they're finding meaning and purpose in their work. That that work is filling their bucket. Now, it, it may be exhausting. You know, I know for me, when I get off stage after giving a keynote, I am emotionally exhausted. I am drained. My bucket is empty, but but it is the most satisfying feeling of exhaustion. Like I feel amazing even though I'm, I'm kind of tired and run down. Uh, and that's because doing that work is in perfect alignment with what fills my bucket, with, with me feeling like I'm following a calling and a purpose, feeling like I'm being of service to others. Um, so so that's not going to burn me out. The only thing that could burn me out is if putting in that level of effort and work is no longer matching my goals and my vision and my values. So it's all about having that alignment.
0: Mm-hmm. Loving what you're doing is something that comes up in a lot of your keynotes and a lot of your content. What about for people that don't love what they're doing and don't know where to start, what to do, what, like, where do they, like, what is the process for them? How can they find that love?
1: And, and I've experienced that as well. I mean, I've personally reached burnout two times in my life and 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 I'm not very old. Uh, so the, the first time was, Uh, towards the end of high school and beginning of college, uh, I started to get really burned out on playing basketball. You know, even though I identified as a basketball player, the game wasn't bringing me joy the way that it had when I was younger. Mm -hmm. Basketball felt more like a chore. It felt more like a job, you know, uh, I just didn't enjoy it as much. And then I started to feel burnout again, as we've already discussed as uh, after 15 years in the basketball performance training space, I started to feel burnt out on teaching players how to improve their athleticism. Um, So in both instances, the first instance, I did not stop playing basketball. I had to reframe the way that I was viewing it and had to do some of those little micro reinventions to get the love back uh, so I could continue playing through the end of my college career. Uh, But then in the other case, I figured out that it was actually time to make a much bigger reinvention and pivot. And I left the basketball training space to pursue corporate keynote speaking. So to answer your question, um, and once again, you're going to be like, geez, Alan, you just keep saying the same stuff over and over. If you feel like you're not loving your work, the first thing you do is say, it's okay. It's okay to not love my work at this moment. I'm human. I'm not going to beat myself up. I'm going to be kind and compassionate. I'm going to talk to myself as if my best friend just came into the room and said he doesn't love his work anymore. What would I say to him or what would I say to her? And that's how I'm going to talk to myself. Second, I'm going to try to dig a little deeper and figure out I used to love this work. Why do I no longer love it? What's changed? Has something changed in the actual job description or my responsibilities? Or is something changed on my end and my life as I've gotten older? You know, maybe you've made a, a change. Maybe you started that job when you were single and now you're married and have a child. So, so things on this side of the fence have changed and that's okay too. But I would try to pinpoint when and where and why did I, I stop having the love? And then I would try to troubleshoot and say, okay, are there some minor changes and reinventions that I can make to maybe get the love back? What can I do to, to kind of respark the love? Um, and after you try that, maybe it gets you the love back or maybe you say, nope, this this flame has been completely extinguished. Now I need to try something else. And then we go back yeah, yeah. to what we were talking about before. That will most likely cause you to feel a little scared, a little, you know, uh, have some anxiety on jumping to a new industry or a new job. But just know that's part of the process. And, and I do believe that every person... Uh, in the world has the right to do work that they enjoy and fills their bucket. And sometimes Mm -hmm. they're stepping stones. Like I get it. You you might be pursuing um, work as an actor, but in order to keep the lights on at night, you have to wait tables during the day in order to pursue your dream. So waiting tables might not be your favorite job of all time and you might not love it, but it's a means to an end that allows you to pursue the thing that does fill your bucket and love it. So it's also important that we keep all of these different things uh, in, in perspective. So um, that's kind of the, the, the pattern or, or routine that I would follow trying to figure those different things out. But it always starts mm-hmm. with an awareness. Uh, you're never going to fix something you're oblivious to. You're never going to change something or improve something that you're not aware of. So also congratulate yourself for having the awareness to recognize, you know what, I'm kind of stagnating right now. Or you know what, I'm feeling burnt out. I don't love my job anymore because most people are so numb to that, that they don't even realize it. They wake up 20 years later and go, man, for the last 20 years, I've hated this job. And, and, you know, I don't want to imply that they wasted 20 years, but boy, if they would have come up to that conclusion in year one, maybe they could do something different for the following 19 years that would have had a a massive impact on their fulfillment uh, and the way that they viewed the world.
0: Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for that, Alan. So much quality wisdom, and knowledge shared with us. And this leads us to my final question of this conversation. We have a couple minutes left. Um, through all the highs and lows that is your journey of this life, what has been the greatest life lesson you've learned on your path that you feel called in this moment to share with us?
1: Wow. Um, I think it would just be a summation of a lot of the things that I've, I've said before. I mean, I think the biggest one is learning to have an acceptance with what you control and what you don't. And to focus on the portions that you do have control over which for the most part is your response to any situation and learn how to talk to yourself the way you would talk to a loved one or a friend you know don't pile on the self-criticism but learn to be kind and compassionate to yourself doesn't mean you don't hold yourself accountable and doesn't mean you don't hold yourself to a high standard because i think you should do those things with the people that you love you know the people that are most important in my life i hold them to a high standard and i hold them accountable but that's the same way that we need to learn to talk to ourselves, and uh, I would say those are two of the biggest lessons. And then the, the last thing I would say is just continue to make sure that you you have alignment between your beliefs and your behaviors. That that you get crystal clear on what you believe a winning life looks like to you. You know what what would cause you know, what would give you the most fulfillment, and what would allow you to perform at the highest level. Figure out what that looks like, and then design habits and mindsets and routines that that take you closer to achieving that and make as many decisions as you can that are in alignment with that. So if you believe that living your best life includes mental, physical, emotional and spiritual wellness and I happen to agree with that, then then make sure that you're living a life that as many of those things are pointing in the right direction as possible. But but don't hold yourself to an unrealistic standard of perfection because none of us will ever be perfect life is not perfect so so get more inspired by progress learn to enjoy the work and the process uh and then kind of take the the fruits of that as just a byproduct as an extra i mean I, i know for me i love my work so much and love what i do that any achievement or accolade on top of that is just a bonus it's not the reason for doing it i mean it's you know the book is a perfect example um I did the best I could to write the most helpful book I was capable of at the time. That's it. Now I'm going to do everything I can to promote it and get it in as many hands as possible because I believe it. it, I believe in it and I believe it will help people, but I'm not worried about making any bestseller list. I'm not worried about Oprah Winfrey having me on her show. I'm not worried about, you know, making millions of dollars. I don't worry about any of that stuff. If any of those things happen, they'd be lovely and they're just a nice bonus but they're not the reason for doing it. And I don't, and I say this with all humility I've already won because I've already done what I've loved to do, which is write a book. And that's, that's it. So I've already won the game because I'm the one that determines the rules. Now anything that gets on top of that, any cherry on top of that would be a nice to have, but it doesn't define my self-worth and it certainly doesn't define, you know, the, the journey that I'm on. So when you set the rules to your own game and you live accordingly, you've already won. So you don't have to compare yourself to anyone else. You don't have to worry about how much money you make. You don't have to worry about how many Instagram followers you have. Those external metrics can matter to other people and that's fine, but I don't spend any time worrying about those. I've already won because I'm doing what I love.
0: Beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing that, Alan. Closing thoughts and words from Bianca as we end this conversation.
2: I think this was just uh, full of, uh, of, beautiful beautiful practices for us um thank you for sharing all this I am confident that the people who listen and hear your message and read your book are gonna take away a lot um, that they can apply to their daily lives to feel good to um really get moving in a direction that makes them feel good and um thank you we need this uh, mm-hmm. this kind of message
0: it's the your game is available April 12th. It's available on Amazon and bookstores. And even you recorded an audible. So you can listen to that as well for the auditory listeners, um, for others wanting to connect with you. They can also connect with you on your website, alansteinjr.com and on Instagram at allensteinjr. So to close every conversation, we bring our fist in in unity to the winner's circle at choice. Boom. Thank you
1: so much, Alan. Absolutely. Thank you both. This was a lot of fun. Thank you.